0: Hello and welcome to the Victorian Gaslamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty, Queen Victoria. Episode 24, The Great Hunger. Last episode, I spoke about the foods that the people in the Victorian era had to eat. I mainly focused on the English and their culinary choices, or more accurately, what they were forced to eat in many circumstances. It was in many ways stomach-turning thinking of some of those foods, at least to us these days. But what if you had nothing to eat? You were struggling to provide for your family and living in substandard conditions that were far below even the dirty slums of London. Well, what did you do if you literally had no food? Back in the overview episode on King George III, that was my second episode no less, I spoke about how King George became king of the United Kingdom and Ireland. The title makes it sound like the Irish were an equal part of the kingdom, but sadly, nothing could be further from the truth. Back in the 1700s, a middleman system was introduced for managing properties. Yes, I know this is before the time of our podcast, but it is critical to just how bad things are going to get. What this system created was men that would take care of rent collection from tenants on property working as agents for the absent landlords. They were the middlemen between the owners and the renters, kind of like what real estate agents often do today. This meant that owners were assured of a regular income without the direct responsibility so they could relax and do what they liked. But because there wasn't the regulations and legal protections in place like there are today, you can begin to imagine the exploitation this exposed poor tenants to by those middlemen. And this exploitation basically went unchecked. Why? Because the majority of the Irish tenants were Catholics. Now, I've touched on this discrimination when I was covering both the reigns of George III and George IV. The population of Ireland was predominantly Catholic, and because Catholics were known to place the authority of the Pope above all others, including the aforementioned kings, they were in some way not trusted to be part of the overall community and working together. And if you think this is something of the ancient past, well, I do remember listening to a recording of John F. Kennedy's speech in 1960. As a Catholic, there was some suspicion about his loyalty to the American people, because he was, of course, subjected to the authority of the Pope. And in his speech, he directly stated that he is there for the American people, and he addressed this concern. I do not speak for my church on public matters, and the church does not speak for me. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute. But back to our time period, and not only were the general Irish population poor, being ripped off by the middlemen taking advantage of their positions, they were also seen as second-class citizens by the United Kingdom for their apparent lack of loyalty to the kingdom the Irish Catholics made up around 80% of the population, but the top of the social pyramid in Ireland was the English and the Anglo-Irish families. They owned most of the land and could pretty much do what they wanted with their tenants. They also mainly lived in England and used the middlemen I described. So as long as they were getting their income, you can imagine the level of care that they had for the minimal wage tenants ...back across the Irish Sea. As an understandable consequence... ...the country was regarded as... ...resistant to being part of the Crown. No surprises there. In 1829, the Catholic Emancipation Act... ...gave the majority of Irish... ...a chance to be represented in Parliament... ...and other rights. But it wasn't until 1843... ...that the British government decided that it was the issue with land use and property ownership that were the main cause of problems on the Emerald Isle. And it was in 1845 that the Chairman of the Royal Commission, the Honourable Earl of Devon, reported the following, It would be impossible to adequately describe the privations which they, the Irish labourer and his family, habitually and silently endure, in many districts, their only food is the potato, their only beverage, water. Their cabins are seldom a protection against the weather, a bed or a blanket is a rare luxury, and nearly in all, their pig and a manure heap constitute their only property. Quote. Not much I can add there to make it any more dramatic, can I? They were living in a realm that was experiencing some of the greatest technological innovations of human history, and they were lucky to have a pig sharing their dirt-floored huts. The wonderful Victorian historian Cecil Woodham Smith would later describe the landlords as regarding these lands as nothing more than a source of income, from which as much as possible was to be extracted. She also added that some landlords visited their properties only once or twice in a lifetime and all the money was sent elsewhere. From what I've been able to find out, in the year 1842, an estimated £6 million was taken out of Ireland. Six million, you say? Yeah, okay Heath. So? Well, I think we all understand the importance of an economy having money cycling through it. To give you some rough ideas in today's figures, in the UK, that would be about £670 million. In the US, about $800 million. And if you're an Aussie with our exchange rate, it's about $1.3 So by any comparison, that's a truckload of cash that's being torn out of an economy. I mentioned before about the extortion and financial corruption amongst the middlemen that the landowners back in England have made use of. I didn't go far enough in my description, because the commission in 1843 is quoted as calling those middlemen land sharks, bloodsuckers, and, I like this quote, the most oppressive species of tyrant that ever lent assistance to the destruction of a country. End quote. Pretty sure that sums it up far better than anything I could write. Their main tactic was to get those huge tracts of lands and then divide it, and put tenants on it, and then divide it again. Add some more tenants, and like selling a car for parts rather than the whole thing, the middlemen were making good money. They could evict tenants for not paying the high rents. They could evict them when a landlord decided to change what they grew. It might have been wheat last week, but now the owner wanted sheep. So, yep, thanks, bye, good luck with your future. Also, there was no compensation for any improvements that you might make on a property as a tenant. So obviously this meant there was little incentive to improve the overall qualities of the land that you were living on. The only county that was the exception to this rule was Ulster, where landlords had to compensate tenants for improving the properties. Quoting Woodham Smith again, she says that the commission investigating reported that, quote, the superior prosperity and tranquility of Ulster compared with the rest of Ireland was due to tenant rights. Quote. So, this clearly was the positive way to act towards those struggling to even eat on small lots of land. She further added that because of the abusive use of power by the middlemen and landowners, that quote unquote industry and enterprise were extinguished and a peasantry created which was one of the most destitute in Europe. In an era that was seeing so many advancements, I can't begin to express just how hard life was for the Irish population during this time. Thanks to that dividing and dividing again of properties, the holdings were getting so small that the only way to make the properties sustainable to eat and survive was to grow potatoes. Before the famine, even the British government stated that the poverty was so widespread that a full third of the properties could not sustain the tenant family after the rent was paid. That's a full third. Many families had to take seasonal work in England and Scotland to try and survive. And I'm not talking about having some extra money to buy the latest phone or pay this month's Netflix subscription. I'm talking about literally having something to eat tonight, let alone tomorrow. And by many families, I do mean most. In the 1841 census, fully two thirds of the 8 million population of Ireland lived in this way. I did say before about how the landowners might switch crops at a whim for their financial benefit. Well, with the plots becoming so small, even they realised that the only sustainable crop to grow was the potato. And so the equivalent of a viral media campaign was created that meant potatoes became the vegetable du jour. Kind of like how everyone these days seems to love cauliflower. But while the gentry began eating more potatoes, and so the landowners made more money, it also meant that those living on the land had at least something to eat. Just the one thing, mind you. Morning, noon and night. Potatoes. This crop, combined with the struggle to survive, created what became known as the Kottia system, where you had an extremely cheap workforce living hand to mouth. Also known as the Villani, they were recognised as being literally tied to the land they worked. Like serfs of old, they had to stay and work, although they had more rights. That is a borderline level of right, but because pretty much assume no rights, given you needed your next meal. And for trivia, villani were regarded as the lowest of the low in society, and it is from there that today we get the term villain. I had no idea either. Anyway. By 1820, the majority of potato crops were grown of a single variety, what was known as the Irish lumper. It was a successful crop, not only in Ireland, but across Europe. Throughout the years of growing potatoes, there were various crop failures caused by known local diseases. They began to hit particularly hard in the late 1830s and into the early 1840s. While these blights caused shortages, farmers were still able to struggle on. At least to some extent. And then along came Phytothoria infestans. I think that's pretty close to what it was. I'm not going to try again. When it first arrived in Europe, it's uncertain time-wise, but experts believe it was not present before 1842 and most likely arrived around 1844. Its origins were in the Toluca Valley in Mexico and it's believed that it came across to Europe and Ireland via potato supplies from the US. And it first started to hit their crops in 1845. In August of that year, the Gardener's Chronicle and Horticultural Gazette reported that a blight of unusual character had broken out on the Isle of Wight. The Gazette reported a week later that the fields in Belgium had been completely desolated. Shortly after this, it was reported to be through every potato in Covent Gardens in the markets in London, and by September it was being called the Cholera of Potatoes. And then it was announced that this potato cholera was now in Ireland. The British government played down public fears of how extensive the blight was. But then we got to October and time to bring in the crops. The results were, to say the least, catastrophic. Losses in this year have been estimated between fully one-third to as much as half of the entire crop across Ireland. Now, as I said, this was the main food for the majority of the population. Also, around one-third of the year's crop was also used in feeding livestock, so you can start to see the flow-on effect there as well. People who were living literally hand-to-mouth were finding their crops gone, The struggle began to survive a day, let alone a week. And then in 1846, a full three quarters of the harvest was lost. But this time, over 300,000 people were destitute and employed in public works. At this time, the total population of Ireland was a little over 8 million. And the 300,000 figure is those who could work not those family members who were also affected that couldn't work. And over 3 million of the 8 million were entirely dependent on the potato for their food, like I said, morning, noon and night. And then sadly, the first deaths from starvation started being recorded. Farmers tried to avoid the blight and grow potatoes from seed in 1847, but it was a lot slower and not all of them could do it. Yields that year were recorded as average, and while it helped, many were still going hungry. And then in 1848, the crop was only two-thirds the average. So what was the government doing to help? Well, they did look at plans during these years to help these people. One main suggestion was to close food exports so that grain would stay in Ireland rather than be shipped away. This had occurred previously in the famine of 1782-83 and meant that food prices lowered so that the people at least had something to eat. But the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Lord Hatesbury, declined this suggestion, believing that such an act would be premature. John Mitchell, an Irish activist and journalist, who could definitely have a podcast episode of his own, wrote in the Nation newspaper as early as 1844, saying that the Irish people were being trifled with and that the government didn't have any conception that, quote-unquote, millions of human beings in Ireland have nothing to eat. Back in the 13th podcast, I talked about the Corn Laws and how during this time they were repealed by Prime Minister Robert Peel to lower the artificially high price of bread to try and give people something to eat. It didn't help and the resulting mess forced Peel to resign. His successor, Lord John Russell, proved absolutely useless in helping the Irish. This fool believed that the market would sort itself out, so other than continuing the work programs, he didn't do anything. I mentioned there before that the government refused to retain export-assigned food in Ireland to feed their people. Drew University professor Christine Keneally wrote in 1997 that almost 4,000 vessels shipped food from Ireland in 1847 alone. Exports of calves, bacon and ham actually increased that year and nearly 4 million litres of butter left the country. Now, I know you can't live on butter alone, but that along with the export of other commodities like peas, beans, salmon, herring and rabbits meant that there was a lot of food leaving Ireland in 1847. And in 1847, 400,000 Irish men, women and children died of starvation. They simply could not afford the food that was available. Writing after the famine in 1861, John Mitchell said in his work The Last Conquest of Ireland that quote unquote, "the Almighty indeed sent the potato blight, but the English created the famine." I find that kind of hard to disagree with, really. And in March 1847, the Times newspaper reported that Britain had permitted in Ireland, "quote unquote, A massive poverty, disaffection and degradation without a parallel in the world. It allowed proprietors to suck the very lifeblood of that wretched race. By the end of 1847, a Poor Law Amendment Act was in place. That should help. As we say here in Australia, yeah, nah. If you owned at least a quarter acre of land, you had to sell all your produce, what there was of it, to pay rent and taxes before you could receive government relief. But you wouldn't get that relief until you delivered up your land to the landlord as well, most of whom of course were rich and living in England. This Poor law drove 90,000 people off the land in 1849 and a further 104,000 in 1850. Combine that, yes there's more, combine that with an 1849 law that meant landlords could auction estates with debts. New landowners jacked up the rents, evicted tenants and created larger properties more suited to grazing pastures. Between 1849 and 1854, this ejected an estimated 50,000 families off the land. That's not 50,000 people, I'm saying 50,000 families. Can you imagine the farming communities in your country having that many families kicked off the properties they owned? All because of some dodgy laws and some land grabbing? These days we kind of think, well at least it seems from here, that the Irish and English is having some sort of dislike towards each other. I guess it's much like siblings would, or like Australia and New Zealand. But reading for this podcast, I've learned it really was so much more. And it's because of this continued export of critical food during this time that Cecil Woodham Smith wrote that this period evoked so much anger and embittered relations between Ireland and England, in effect that last to this day. The blight took on such a catastrophic effect on the crops because the farmers relied so much on one single type of one single crop. Like elsewhere in nature, mixing types makes for stronger breeds. Alloys are always stronger than pure metals after all. But because all the potatoes were of just one type and the blight affected that type, They had virtually no chance of keeping even a minimal crop. It's hard to get exact figures, but it is estimated around 1 million people died from famine between 1845 and 1849. Remember, the entire population is only 8 million. And you might note I said that there was the million that died from the famine. Not everyone died while starving, disease spread throughout communities, including that ever-present cholera. Now, I'm gathering at this point, you've probably listened to a few episodes and you're having some idea of the constant threat that cholera presents to society in the 1800s. It's estimated in the famine years and throughout the early 1850s, somewhere between 20 to 25%, that's a quarter, of the population died from diseases because of the lack of available nutrition. And there were other flow-on effects on Irish society as well. Those lucky enough to survive or weren't directly affected by famine meant that in an odd circumstance of statistics, the average age of married couples went up by around 5 years to 28 for women and 33 for men. That sounds young for today, but you might remember that the average age of the working class was only in their 40s. Think about that, 28 years old for a woman and 33 for a man, that's all you had. These days most of us are barely getting our lives together by that age, but in Ireland at that time, that was about it for you. Time to shuffle off that mortal coil. Add to that the factor that a third of men and a quarter of women never married because their economic circumstances couldn't afford it, so there's this overall population decline because of less families. Effectively, Ireland was dying by generations. And then I get to add more on top of this, because during this era, we had the great diaspora of the Irish around the world, largely to America, where I'm pretty confident in believing that we all have a fair idea of the strong Irish influences on American culture in particular. I think we can all agree there was very little for Irish families in their homeland, And in many cases, an older child would be sent, earning enough money to then bring more of the family across in a time-honoured tradition for those around the world hoping for a better life. But over one million Irish left their homeland in this fashion. The deaths were catastrophic during the famine and continuing on from there with the later disease-related deaths, even worse for those that remained, and then another million people the future generations of Ireland left basically out of sheer survival. They changed the cultural landscapes of the countries they fled to, especially the US where to this day I think we can all agree that the people that were starved, exploited and left to die have created an invaluable contribution to their new homeland. They had been manipulated by their landlords and by the landowners and then abandoned by their government. The losses they endured have entered into their social consciousness and remains to this day. By around 1852, the famine had largely ended, not through the help of the government or resources applied to the problem, but because the crops slowly began to recover. And unfortunately, with a great deal less population left to consume the produce, the problem fortunately became history. That population of 8 million in 1841 was down to around 4.5 million at the turn of the century. To this day, Ireland is the only country in Europe to have less people than they had in 1840. I like to make this a lighter podcast and entertaining, but I do need to describe this event because of the integral part it plays in Irish-English relations. And it can't be forgotten that the way it changed other countries around the world... So, here endeth the episode. I want to give a huge thank you to all of those out there that have been writing and letting me know that they have been enjoying the podcast. It is very flattering for me to hear and I hugely appreciate you taking the time to write. I think I'm going to go have a Guinness and appreciate what I have. Cheers to you, or more appropriately, Sláinte. And I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.